Tchaikovsky continued. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories of Symphonic Music by Lawrence Gilman. Tchaikovsky continued. Symphony Number no. Four in F Minor, Opus Thirty Six. Number One, Andante Sostenuto, Moderato con anima in movimento di valse. Number Two, Andantino in modo di canzona. Number Three, Scherzo, Pizzicato ostinato allegro. Number Four, Finale allegro con fuoco tchaikovsky began this symphony in eighteen seventy six and completed it in the winter of eighteen seventy seven seventy eight the score bears the dedication to my best friend and behind the phrase lies a singular history too long to be told here in full the best friend was nadeshta Filaretovna von Meck. Footnote. Nadezhda Filaretovna von Meck was born in the village of Znamensky in the government of Smolensky, February 10th, 1831. She was thus nine years older than Tchaikovsky when her husband, an engineer, died in 1876. She was left with eleven children and a very large fortune, although they had not always been rich. Modeste Tchaikovsky described her as a proud and energetic woman, of strong convictions, with the mental balance and business capacity of a man, a woman who despised all that was petty, commonplace, and conventional absolutely free from sentimentality in her relations with others yet capable of deep feeling and of being completely carried away by what was lofty and beautiful End of footnote a widow living in moscow exceedingly wealthy she deeply admired the music of tchaikovsky she inquired concerning his pecuniary circumstances and learning that his means were straightened and that he was in debt she sent him in the summer of eighteen seventy seven the sum of three thousand rubles a correspondence had meanwhile begun between them the first letter from mrs von Mack is dated december thirtieth eighteen seventy six she had given tchaikovsky certain small commissions to do for her transcriptions for violin and piano of certain of his works which she wished made and for these she paid him generous fees in the autumn of eighteen seventy seven she asked him with many apologies to permit her to settle upon him an annual allowance of six thousand rubles about three thousand dollars that he might compose undisturbed by material cares if i wanted something from you she wrote of course you would give it me is it not so very well then we cry quits do not interfere with my management of your domestic economy peter Ilyich. she desired and insisted 
that they should never meet or personally known each other the more you fascinate me the more i shrink from knowing you she wrote tchaikovsky accepted the settlement and respected her wish concerning their intercourse i can only serve you wrote the composer by means of my music nadeshta filaretovna every note which comes from my pen in future is dedicated to you they corresponded frequently at length and with the deepest intellectual and spiritual intimacy but they never met when they accidentally came face to face writes tchaikovsky's brother modeste they passed as total strangers to the end of their days they never exchanged a word their correspondence which extended over thirteen years was abruptly and lamentably ended in december eighteen ninety tchaikovsky received a letter from his patroness informing him that she was on the brink of ruin and that she would be obliged to discontinue his allowance this despite the fact that she had more than once declared to him that no matter what occurred his annuity was assured to him for life as it happened this curtailment of his income did not greatly affect tchaikovsky's pecuniary situation for he had come to know prosperity with his increasing fame but he suffered keen anxiety on his friend's account not long after it turned out that mrs von Meck's fortune was not seriously affected after all a turn of events which however brought misery to the hypersensitive soul of tchaikovsky he persuaded himself that mrs von Meck's announcement had been merely an excuse to get rid of him on the first opportunity that he had been mistaken in idealizing his relations with his best friend that his allowance had long since ceased to be the outcome of a generous impulse such were my relations with her he wrote at this time to a friend that i never felt oppressed by her generous gifts but now they weigh upon me in retrospect my pride is hurt my faith in her unfailing readiness to help me and to make any sacrifice for my sake is betrayed he thought of returning to her in full the money she had settled upon him but feared to mortify her he endeavored both frankly and diplomatically to renew their intercourse but to no avail she made no response whatever to his attempts to continue their relationship either through letters or in response to overtures made by tchaikovsky through mutual friends he learned that she was ill ill of a terrible nervous disease which changed her relations not only to him but to others yet no illness no misfortune it seemed to him could as he wrote change the sentiments which were expressed in her letters i would sooner he declared have believed that the earth could fail beneath me than that our relations could suffer change but the inconceivable has happened and all my ideas of human nature all my faith in the best of mankind 
have been turned upside down my peace is broken and the share of happiness fate has allotted me is embittered and spoiled two years later on his deathbed her name was constantly and feverishly on his lips in an indignant or reproachful tone says modest in the broken phrases of his last delirium these words alone were intelligible to those around him footnote the passages quoted from tchaikovsky's letters are given in mrs rosa newmark's translation and of footnote nadezhda von mack survived him by only two months she died january twenty fifth eighteen ninety four the fourth symphony is closely bound up with this singular experience not only is it dedicated to tchaikovsky's devoted benefactress but he speaks of it repeatedly in his correspondence with her as our symphony may this music which is so intimately associated with the thought of you he wrote to her in november eighteen seventy seven speak to you and tell you that i love you with all my heart and soul all my best and incomparable friend that the symphony has a well-defined programme we know on the authority of the composer himself though the score bears no descriptive title or prefatory note of any kind writing to mrs von Meck from florence in march eighteen seventy eight tchaikovsky sent this exposition of his music which he accompanied with thematic illustrations you ask if in composing this symphony i had a special program in view for our symphony there is a program that is to say it is possible to express its contents in words and i will tell you and you alone the meaning of the entire work and of its separate movements naturally i can do so only as regards its general features number one andante sustenuto moderato con anima in movimento di valse the introduction is the kernel the quintessence the chief thought of the whole symphony tchaikovsky quotes the stern and threatening opening theme announced by horns and bassoons andante this is fate the fatal power which hinders one in the pursuit of happiness from gaining the goal which jealously provides that peace and comfort do not prevail that the sky is not free from clouds a might that swings like the sword of damocles constantly over the head that poisons continually the soul this might is overpowering and invincible there is nothing to do but to submit and vainly to complain tchaikovsky quotes here the expressive theme for strings moderato con anima the feeling of despondency and despair grows ever stronger and more passionate it is better to turn from the realities and to lull one's self in dreams clarinet solo accompanied by strings oh joy what a lovely and gentle dream a radiant being promising happiness floats before me and beckons me on the importunate first theme of the allegro is now heard afar off and now the soul is wholly enwrapped with dreams 
there is no thought of gloom and cheerlessness happiness 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 no they are only dreams and fate dispels them the whole of life is only a constant alternation between the small reality and flattering dreams of happiness there is no port you will be tossed hither and thither by the waves until the sea swallows you this approximately is the program of the first movement number two andantino in modo di canzona the second movement shows suffering in another stage it is a feeling of melancholy such as feels one when one sits alone at home exhausted by work the book has slipped out of one's hand a swarm of memories arise in one's mind how sad that so much has been and is gone and yet it is pleasant to think of the days of one's youth we regret the past and have neither the courage nor the desire to begin a new life we are weary of life we wish refreshment retrospection we think of happy hours when our young blood still sparkled and effervesced and life brought satisfaction we think of moments of sadness and irrepressible losses but these things are far away so far away it is sad yet sweet to pour over the past number three scherzo pizzicato ostinato allegro no definite feelings find expression in the third movement these are capricious arabesques and tangible figures which flit through the fancy as if one had drunk wine and become slightly intoxicated the mood is neither merry nor sad we think of nothing but give free rein to the fancy which humors itself in drafting the most singular lines suddenly there arises the memory of a drunken peasant and a ribald song military music passes by in the distance such are the disconnected images which flit through the brain as one sinks into slumber they have nothing to do with reality they are incomprehensible bizarre fragmentary number four finale allegro con fuoco fourth movement if you find no pleasure in yourself look about you go to the folk see how it understands to be jolly how it surrenders itself to gaiety the picture of a folk holiday scarcely have you forgotten yourself scarcely have you had time to be absorbed in the happiness of others before untiring fate again announces its approach the other children of men are not concerned with you they neither see nor feel that you are lonely and sad how they enjoy themselves how happy they are and will you maintain that everything in the world is sad and gloomy there is still happiness simple native happiness rejoice in the happiness of others and you can still live 
this is all that i can tell you my dear friend about the symphony manfred symphony in four tableau opus fifty eight number one lento lugubre andante number two scherzo vivace con espirito number three pastorale andante con motto number four finale allegro con fuoco the symphony is frankly program music it is not listed among tchaikovsky's symphonies where in order of composition and opus number it would stand between the fourth opus thirty six eighteen seventy six seventy eight and the fifth opus sixty four eighteen eighty eight manfred symphony in four tableau after the dramatic poem by byron was composed in eighteen eighty five the score contains the following preface printed in french and russian one manfred wanders in the alps tortured by the fatal anguish of doubt racked by remorse and despair his soul is a prey to sufferings without a name neither the occult science whose mysteries he has probed to the bottom and by means of which the gloomy powers of hell are subject to him nor anything in the world can give him the forgetfulness to which alone he aspires the memory of the fair astarte whom he has loved and lost eats his heart nothing can dispel the curse which weighs on manfred's soul and without cessation without truce he is abandoned to the tortures of the most atrocious despair number two the fairy of the alps appears to manfred beneath the rainbow of the waterfall number three pastorale simple free and peaceful life of the mountaineers number four the underground palace of arimanes manfred appears in the midst of a bacchanal invocation of the ghost of astarte she foretells him the end of his earthly woes manfred's death footnote translated by mr philip hale end of footnote number one lento lugubre andante manfred's despair and anguish his inextinguishable longing and remorse his fruitless quest after forgetfulness form the emotional and dramatic burden of this movement manfred's theme is heard at the beginning a sombre and tragic motive for bassoons and bass clarinet there are also musical symbols for his passionate appeal for oblivion for his occult powers and for the thought of astarte the movement should not be considered as panoramic in any sense there is no attempt to depict any special scene to translate into music any particularly soliloquy it is the soul of manfred that the composer wishes to portray number two scherzo vivace con espirito this movement was suggested by the second scene of act two of byron's drama 
in which Manfred, beside the cataract, evokes the witch of the Alps, tells her of Astarte and of his own remorse and longing, and, although she intimates that she may help him, rejects her aid. For he is not willing to swear obedience to her will. As the scene in the poem may be regarded as a picturesque episode, for the incantation is fruitless and only one of many, so the music is a relief after the tumultuous passion and raging despair of the first movement. The vision of the dashing, glistening cataract continues until with note of triangle and chord of harp the rainbow is revealed to the accompaniment of mysterious and ethereal harp tones manfred conjures up the witch who rises beneath the arch of the sunbow of the torrent her song is suggested violins and harps there is a poignant reminiscence of manfred's despair the glory of the cataract is once more seen it pales as the theme of despair is heard again number three pastorale andante con moto this scene is general in its suggestiveness it has no definite connection with any particular scene in byron's poem the opening is idyllic but the mood of the music is soon altered again we are reminded of manfred's unalterable woe perhaps tchaikovsky had in mind here a tense passage in the scene between manfred and the chamois hunter act two scene one manfred thinkst thou existence does depend on time it does but actions are our epochs mine have made my days and nights imperishable endless and all alike as sands on the shore innumerable atoms and one desert barren and cold on which the wild waves break but nothing rests save carcasses and wrecks rocks and the salt surf weeds of bitterness chamois hunter alas he's mad but yet i must not leave him manfred i would i were for then the things I see would be but a distempered dream. Shamo Hunter, what is it that thou dost see or think thou lookest upon? Manfred, myself and thee, a peasant of the Alps, thy humble virtues, hospitable home, and spirit patient, pious, proud, and free thy self-respect ingrained on innocent thoughts this do i see and then i look within it matters not my soul was escorted already number four finale allegro con fuoco this bacchanal in the underground palace of arimanes is tchaikovsky's own invention there is no bacchanal or suggestion of one in the corresponding scene in byron's poem where arimanes seated on his throne of fire is surrounded by spirits who praise him in a worshipful hymn at the climax of the music's wild revealing the motive of despair is recalled 
the music becomes uncanny mysterious we hear the theme of manfred nemesis who has entered the hall together with the destinies invokes the wraith of astarte manfred can this be death there's bloom upon her cheek but now i see it is no living hue but a strange hectic like the unnatural red which autumn plants upon the perished leaf it is the same o oh god that i should dread to look upon the same astarte no i cannot speak to her but bid her speak forgive me or condemn me phantom of astarte manfred manfred say on say on i live but in the sound it is thy voice phantom manfred to-morrow ends thine earthly ills farewell manfred yet one word more am i forgiven phantom farewell manfred say shall we meet again phantom farewell manfred one word for mercy say thou lovest me phantom manfred the spirit of astarte disappears nemesis she is gone and will not be recalled her words will be fulfilled return to the earth a spirit he is convulsed this is to be a mortal and seek the things beyond mortality the music rises to a momentous and tragic climax manfred's death theme is brought before us we are in the tower of his castle night approaches the importunate demons have disappeared manfred and the abbot are alone act three scene four the abbot alas how pale thou art thy lips are white and thy breast heaves and in thy gasping throat the accents rattle give thy prayers to heaven pray albeit but in thought but die not thus manfred tis over my dull eyes can fix thee not but all things swim around me and the earth heaves as it were beneath me fare thee well give me thy hand abbot cold cold even to the heart but yet one prayer alas how fares it with thee manfred old man tis not so difficult to die manfred expires abbot he's gone his soul has taken his earthless flight whither i dread to think but he is gone symphony number no. six pathetic opus seventy four number one adagio allegro non troppo number two allegro con grazia number three allegro molto vivace number four finale adagio lamentoso tchaikovsky wrote to vladimir davidov on february twenty third 
1893. Just as I was starting on my journey to visit to Paris in December 1892, the idea came to me for a new symphony, this time with a program, but a program which should be a riddle to all. Let them guess it who can. The work will be entitled A Program Symphony Number no. 6. This program is penetrated by subjective sentiment. During my journey, while composing it in my mind, I have often wept bitterly. Now that I am home again, I have settled down to sketch out the work, and I work at it with such ardor that in less than four days I have finished the first movement, while the other movements are clearly outlined in my mind. There will be much as regards the form that will be novel in this work. For instance, the finale will not be a boisterous allegro, but on the contrary, an extended adagio. Six months later, he wrote to Davidoff that the symphony was progressing and that he considered it the best, especially the most open-hearted of all his works. I love it, as I have never loved any of my musical offspring before. On August 24th, he informed his publisher, Jurgensen, that he had finished orchestrating the symphony, nor did his opinion of it change. It is indescribably beautiful, he wrote, in a fervor of enthusiasm to his brother Modeste, and to the Grand Duke Constantine, he wrote, on October the 3rd, without exaggeration, I have put my whole soul into this work. It was the last score, but one upon which he was to work. Five weeks later, he was dead. Footnote. In the October before his death, Tchaikovsky was busied with the orchestration of his third piano concert, Opus 75 based on portions of a symphony which he begun in May, 1892, but afterwards destroyed. End of footnote. The symphony was produced at St. Petersburg on October 28th, when it made little impression. It was said that its inspiration stood far below Tchaikovsky's other symphonies. It did not then bear the title pathetic. How it came to be so named is thus related by Modeste Tchaikovsky. The morning after the concert, I found my brother sitting at the breakfast table with the score of the symphony before him. He had agreed to send the score to Jorgensen, his publisher, that very day, but could not decide upon a title. He did not care to designate it merely by a number, and he had abandoned his original intention of entitling it a program symphony. What would program symphony mean, he said, if I will not give the program? I suggested tragic symphony as an appropriate title, but that did not please him. I left the room while he was still undecided. Suddenly, pathetic occurred to me, and I went back to the room and suggested it. 
I remember, as though it were yesterday, how he exclaimed, Bravo, Modi! Splendid! Pathetic! And then and there he added to the score in my presence the title that will always remain. What precisely was in Tchaikovsky's mind when he composed this program symphony? According to Tchaikovsky's intimate friend Nicolas Kashkin, if the composer had disclosed it to the public, the world would not have regarded the symphony as a kind of legacy from one filled with a presentiment of his own approaching end. To him, it seems more reasonable to interpret the overwhelming energy of the third movement and the abysmal sorrow of the finale in the broader light of a national or historical significance, rather than to narrow them to the expression of an individual experience. If the last movement is intended to be predictive, it is surely of things vaster and issues more fatal than are contained in a mere personal apprehension of death. It speaks rather of a lamentation, large a souffrance inconnue, and seems to set the seal of finality on all human hopes. Even if we eliminate the purely subjective interest, this autumnal aspiration of Tchaikovsky, in which we hear the ground whirl of the perished leaves of hope, still remains the most profoundly stirring of his works. No one has speculated with finer tact and sympathy concerning this extraordinary human document than has Mr. Philip Hale, whose meditations may well serve as a comment upon the character of the music. Each hearer has his own thoughts when he is reminded by the instruments. To some, the symphony is as the life of man. The story is to them of men's illusions, desires, loves, struggles, victories, and end. In the first movement, they find with the despair of old age and the dread of death, the recollection of early years with the transports and the illusions of love, the remembrance of youth and all that is contained in that world. The second movement might bear as a motto the words of the third calendar in the thousand nights and the night and we sat down to drink and some sang songs and others played lute and psaltery and recorders and other instruments and the ball went merrily round Hereupon such gladness possessed me that I forgot the sorrows of the world one and all, and said, This is indeed life, O oh, sad, that this fleeting. The trio footnote, see page 210, End of. footnote, is as the sound of the clock that in Poe's wild tale compelled even the musicians of the orchestra to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company and while the chimes of the clock yet rung it was observed 
that the giddiest grew pale and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation in this trio death beats the drum with tchaikovsky here as in the manfred symphony the drum is the most tragic of instruments the persistent drum beat in this trio is poignant in despair not untouched with irony man says come now i'll be gay and he tries to sing and to dance and to forget his very gaiety is labored forced constrained in an unnatural rhythm and then the drum is heard and there is wailing there is angry protest there is the conviction that the struggle against fate is vain again there is the deliberate effort to be gay but the drum once heard beats in the ears forever the third movement the march scherzo is the excuse the pretext for the final lamentation the man triumphs he knows all that there is in earthly fame success is hideous as victor hugo said the blare of trumpets the shouts of the mob may drown the sneers of envy but at pompeii passing roman streets at tasso with the laurel wreath at coronation of the czar or inauguration of president death greens for he knows the emptiness the vulgarity of what this world calls success this battle drunk delirious movement must be forced precede the mighty wail the glories of our blood and state are shadows not substantial things there is no armor against fate death lays his icy hands on kings the last movement the prodigious adagio lamentoso moved mr vernon blackburn to a comparison with shelley's adonais the precise emotions he wrote down to a certain and extreme point which inspired shelley in his wonderful expression of grief and despair also inspired the greatest of modern musicians since wagner in his swan song his last musical utterance on earth the first movement is the exact counterpart of those lines he will awake no more oh nevermore within the twilight chamber spreads apace the shadow of white death as the musician strays into the darkness and into the miserable oblivion of death tchaikovsky reaches the full despair of those older lines we decay like corpses in a charnel fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day and cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay with that mysterious and desperate hopelessness the russian comes to an end of his faith and anticipation for as life writes shelley like a many-colored dome of glass stains the white radiance of eternity even so tchaikovsky in this symphony has stained eternity's radiance he has captured the years and bound them into a momentary emotional pang the voivode orchestral ballad posthumous 
Opus 78. Footnote. Voivode, in Russian, a military commander, general, or governor of a province. End of footnote. Tchaikovsky composed Le Voivode at Tiflis in 1890, under the inspiration of a poem by the Polish poet Adam Mickiewicz, 1798-1855. It is said that after the first performance of the work at Moscow in November 1891, Tchaikovsky disheartened over the cool reception of his music by the audience and by the adverse criticism of his friends, tore his score in pieces, exclaiming, Such rubbish should never have been written. Footnote. The authorship of this story is attributed to the pianist Alexander Silotti, a pupil of Tchaikovsky. End of footnote. The orchestral parts are alleged to have been preserved and the score restored from them. At all events, the work was published in 1897, four years after Tchaikovsky's death. Mikievich's poem in French and Russian prefaces the score. It has been translated into English prose as follows. Footnote by Mr. Philip Hale. End of footnote. The voivode comes back from the war late at night. He orders silence, rushes toward the nuptial bed, draws aside the curtains. This, then, true. No one. The bed is empty. Darker than black night, he lowers his eyes shot with rage, twists his grizzling moustache, then throwing back his long sleeves, he leaves and bolts the door. Hello there, he cries. Devil's food. Why do I not see at the gate bolts or watch dogs? Race of ham. Quick, my gun. Bring a sack, a cord, and take the carbine hanging on the wall. Follow me. I shall make known my vengeance on this woman. The master and the young servant spy along the wall. They go into the garden and see, through the bushes, the young woman, all in white, seated near the fountain with a young man at her feet. He was saying, And so nothing is left to me of those former delights, of that which I so dearly loved, the size of your white breast, the pressure of your soft hand, these the voivode has bought. How many years did I sigh after you? How many years did I seek you, and you have renounced me? The voivode did not seek you. He did not sigh for you. He made his money jingle, and you gave yourself to him. I have passed through the darkness of the night to see the eyes of my well-beloved, to press her soft hand, to wish her in her new dwelling many prosperous years, much joy, and then to leave her forever. The fair one wept and mourned. The young man embraced her knees, and the other two watched them through the bushes. They laid their guns on the ground. They took cartridges from their belts. They beat them and rammed them home. 
then they crept up gently master i cannot aim said the poor servant is it the wind but there are tears in my eyes i tremble my arms are growing weak there is no priming powder in the pan be silent slave i'll teach you to whimper fill the pan now aim aim at the forehead of the false woman more to the left higher i'll take care of the lover hush my turn first wait the carbine shot rang through the garden the young servant could not wait the voivode screamed the voivode staggered the servant's aim it seems was poor the ball pierced the voivode's forehead end of section thirty five